unhealthy attachment and how trauma is passed on from generation to generation. My name is Justin Sinceri, licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to episode nine of the Polyvagal Podcast. couple of announcements. The first one is that the next episode will be the beginning of the school environments uh, slash polyvagal theory uh, series. I think we'll be doing about four of those. Um, And I will have a co-host joining me. She's um, a co-worker of mine. And I I know you're going to love her. She's a ton of fun. And um, she's as almost as obsessed with polyvagal theory as I am. So um, yeah, it'll be a really, really fun uh, addition to the podcast. Also, of course, put yourself first. This is the first time I think I'm going to say this is a pretty triggering episode. I really anticipate that some of you are going to go to an unsafe place. I promise there's no details of trauma, no specific stories of trauma. I um, talk generally, but at the same time, you know, we're talking about some family dynamic stuff. So it's going to it might come kind of crashing home for you. I hope things fall in place like a nice game of Tetris, but um, I don't know. I don't know where you're at, so I'm just gotta, I gotta trust you on this. So take a walk, get a hug, cry with someone, drink some water, focus on your breathing, do some yoga, whatever works for you. Make sure you're ready for this and have a break planned out. But again, I I, I think it's pretty. I handle it as safe as I can, but you know it's family dynamic stuff, so. We have to be prepared for that. So we'll do a quick polyvagal breakdown. This is probably the biggest song of our time, but you may not have heard it. If you've got a toddler, I think you've probably heard it. Listen with your body, not with your ears. Uh, No heavy metal here. You probably won't be scared by this. All right, here we go. That's enough. I'm sorry. I, I know some of you have avoided that like the plague probably, but I have to bring it up. I think it's a fun one to actually look at. And the next time you hear it in its entirety, which I'm sure you will, uh, you'll you'll have a, a polyvagal breakdown of it, which will be a lot of fun. So this is the song of our children's life right now. If you've got a toddler, um, this is it. Baby Shark. So this song starts off how what is it what do we hear when it first starts off i'll do it again real quick here it's like jaws right it's like that deep sound of like something like something's coming something dangerous and you feel that and it really hits you low there right in the gut but then it picks up in intensity now the sympathetic arousal is kicking in So that deep bass is still there with with the child's very high-pitched, safe voice. So it's that combination of like safety, but also sympathetic arousal. 
And if you see kids when the song comes on, they all start moving like they it's it's impossible for them to sit still when this song is on when the song is on. But they're also smiling, they're having a great time, they're dancing with their friends. So it's it's a safe song that is extremely like it really gets the the mobility stuff going, like it gets your legs going or not maybe not yours, but for kids at least it does. Starts off with very low like a very almost kind of like a dangerous sort of feel to it but then there's a sympathetic relief and we kind of come up the polyvagal ladder um and and then in the song what is happening is that they go through the family members of the sharks and they're all swimming away i think and then at the as the song goes on the i guess the fish i think the fish are swimming away from the baby shark and the grandpa shark and the mommy shark they get to safety so it goes from danger to being uh, mobilized with sympathetic arousal. And then at least in the song um, lyrics that the fishies <laughs> reach safety. Let me play the end of the song. Maybe we'll figure out something from it. No, so it ends on that same extremely upbeat mobilized state but um the the lyrics and the visuals are of safety so it kind of goes through the polyvagal ladder from the top to the bottom which i think is pretty interesting some of the last lyrics are safe at last so yeah the entire song goes through the polyvagal ladder and now you can think about that the next time you hear the song and i know you'll hear it again and again and probably again Today's topic is unhealthy attachment and generational trauma. I was planning on writing about and talking about generational trauma, and I had laid out a few different pieces that I thought were important on how trauma is passed on through generations, but then I kept coming back to the attachment part of it. And I, I, I think that's extremely, is very, very integral to how trauma is passed on through generations. So I'm going to be focusing on that. There's something about having a secure, safe attachment with the parent. And if we don't have that, that trauma really, tra- traumatic events, uh, sh- shifts in um, our state, really sort of get passed on generation after generation. Parents are obviously carrying their own trauma from their own families, right? Not all parents, of course. And I'm speaking very loosely here. Your situation may differ. That's fine. But parents are obviously carrying their own trauma their own defensive states from their own families. And this is, of course, affecting their ability to create and maintain a healthy attachment with their own kids. And they probably have this same problem with their own parents, like an unhealthy attachment uh, with their own parents. But I think that the unhealthy attachment part is very central to all of this generational trauma. And this is what, this is a key part, a key part of what gets passed on and is seems ever present that there's an unhealthy level of attachment of course the specific trauma is oftentimes passed on as well that somehow for some reason that generations keep repeating um, the same type of trauma that is possible but the unhealthy attachment part always goes along with it i believe so the emotional disconnection 
the relationship misattunement, I think this is a constant. And I think this actually makes things worse when there is some sort of abuse or traumatic event going on. Fundamental to all this is that parents are down the polyvagal ladder. They are in danger mode. They are they are in some sort of danger state that's flight, fight, and shutdown. That's as the basics, as the primary um, danger state. Oh, by the way, listen to all the previous episodes because a lot of this may not click for you unless you've heard the previous eight episodes. Parents are down the polyvagal ladder. They're in their they're in some sort of danger mode, which means that they have an unhealthy neuroception, and that their vagal break is basically off. Unhealthy neuroception means that they are not detecting danger cues accurately, nor are they shifting into the appropriate autonomic state. They are not going into a safe and social state when things are actually safe. They're sort of always in this chronic state of danger, flight, fight, or shutdown. And if this is the case, they no longer have access to their safe and social system. That means that the sympathetic arousal for flight and fight and the parasympathetic shutdown leads to overreactions or underreactions, but follows the same basic themes, which are priorities are mixed up. Um, They're not making safe decisions due to like critical thinking being offline. They're not accurately detecting danger, which kind of sets kids up for dangerous situations. They're not giving safety cues to the children. And now they're actually giving danger cues or they're actively rejecting or abandoning their children on some level. Now, a parent can be more depressed or more anxious and still be a great parent. I'm not saying it's not what this is about. So this is really based on your subjective experience uh, or your clients. And this is a line for you to draw. I don't know the answer for you, but I'm just sort of, I'm really, again, speaking more in general. But a parent, a parent chronically in a defensive state may not be capable of providing some fundamental needs for their child while also being safe and social. And those are, I think, some key ingredients for attachment, being able to provide fundamental needs while staying in a safe and social state. For example, number one, example number one, with healthy neuroception, hearing a baby cry is a cue of danger. And we shift down the ladder into a safe but sympathetic arousal and provide the baby what it needs. So that, that it's really only a few things to be changed, get fed, get attention, or go to sleep. I remember when we had our both of our kids when they were babies, that uh, every time they were crying and we couldn't figure out what it was, we would go through, I think it was those four things. Do they need to be changed? Do they need to be fed? Do they need, I think it was, do they need attention? And do they need to go to sleep? I mean, that was pretty much it. But to while we're providing those things, we had to be in a safe and social state. We're meeting the fundamental need while being safe and social. We feel the internal danger alarms that accompany a baby crying when we have healthy neuroception. And we can tolerate, with, with a strong enough vagal break, we can tolerate that and then provide for the need of the baby. So hopefully that makes sense. That when we, when we get those alarms of, I need help, or there's, um, like, I need something, that we feel that alarm, we feel that sympathetic arousal probably right in your chest there. And then in a safe and social state, we can act on that, provide the, the need, 
the fundamental need while being safe and social. Parents in a chronic defensive state are aware that their baby's crying, but they're not shifting into a safe but sympathetic arousal to take care of their baby's needs because they don't have access to their safe and social system. So they're, they're in that sympathetic arousal, but they're not combining that with being safe and social. Or So if, if they're acting on the alarm and providing for the need, it may not be consistent enough or with a safe and social cue. So it might be a negative experience, such as yelling or blaming or guilt trips. And now like a baby's not going to be able to understand the words, but a baby will pick up on the cues of yelling. I mean, yelling is yelling. They'll, they're going to pick up on those danger cues. And blaming and guilt trips are, are voices more monotone, and they're going to feel that. And so just sticking a bottle in their mouth or leaving them unsupervised with a bottle, that's not the same as holding them gently singing to them, rocking them. These rhythmic, melodic things like singing and rocking are only available when a parent is in their safe and social state, where they have access to their prosodic voices and can listen to the rhythms of their bodies to rock the baby a little bit. But they can't do that. If you're not in a safe and social state, you don't really do a gentle rocking with the baby. It might be more like an aggressive bounce, maybe, if at all. We have to be in a safe and social state to provide for the need while also giving safety cues. Another example can be a child that throws a tantrum, like maybe a toddler. Uh, Parents in their safe and social system will be more nurturing and patient, but parents in a defensive state will be more demanding or threatening or punitive. So a a child who's throwing a tantrum has a need. There's something that they need, which might be safety or um, to be consoled or to be understood or just to be held or whatever it is. And a parent who has, is in a safe and social system, they'll they'll be able to provide that and get on their level and make eye contact and reassure them that they're safe and whatever. But parents in a more defensive state might ignore it, might walk away from it, might yell at them to be quiet, to get over whatever it is, uh, or might punish them whatever that looks like. Take it a step further, an example when a child uh, could be, I'm sorry, an example could be a child reporting that they've been abused in some way. A parent in their safe and social system will prioritize safety and be able to tolerate their flight fight arousal enough to get the child the help that they need and to be a part of their treatment. A parent in more in a more defensive state won't be able to tolerate and might blame or shame or not believe the child or not appropriately act on the information. In these examples, the parent is not able to be a safe co-regulator and get attuned to the child's autonomic state and emotional and protective needs. So in these examples, the parent's not co-regulating safely. It's not giving those safe and social cues. And maybe a parent can be in a defensive state and still provide for the child's needs so they can still feed them of course and clothe them and all that stuff but if you don't do that with this with the safe and social cues then that's um that's not a healthy attachment it's providing their needs that's great but you there has to be those safety cues to to really bond and, and build that safe attachment with the child let's pause here a moment to make sure that we're understanding what's being talked about. 
Meeting the fundamental needs of the child plus being in a safe and social state is basically what it takes to form a healthy attachment. There's an article that I linked to in the description from Psychology Today where it says it all starts with how parents respond to their children's needs and soothe, or not, the children when they are frightened or distressed. When parents are consistently available, warm and responsive, the children develop secure attachment styles. So this quote is talking about responding to a child's needs and doing so in a safe and social way. Through being in a safe and social state, we are providing safety cues and the co-regulation necessary for a child to be in their own safe and social system. A parent in their safe and social system is going to naturally be providing for the needs, the basic needs of their children and their emotional needs. A parent not in their safe and social system is not necessarily going to be providing for the needs of their children. And if they are, it will not be with safety cues necessary for co-regulation. It can't because they're not in their safe and social system. In fact, if the parent is meeting the needs of their child without the safety, then the child will possibly grow up understanding that danger and basic needs go hand in hand. And they will adapt to get their needs met by dropping and staying down the ladder. Quick thought experiment. Who do you think is least likely to be traumatized and pass it on to the next generation? Three options here. Number one, someone who survives a traumatic event but is able to go to a safe person and get the help they need and eventually work their way out of their shutdown state. Or option two, someone that survives a trauma but does not go to a safe person because they don't have a safe person. Or number three, someone that survived a traumatic event tells somebody and gets a negative response, like being shamed or being blamed or minimized. Of course, this is not, obviously it's number one, right? They're the least likely to pass on that trauma to the next generation because they don't have the emotional abandonment. They have a healthy attachment with someone who can protect them. Of course, this isn't a prognosis for any one individual's future. I, I, I can't know that. But based on my experience with working with families, it's the ones that don't have a safe person or aren't believed that are more likely to pass on these unhealthy attachments and traumas to the next generation. So because these parents are in a danger state, they're simply not as emotionally available. Many, I mean, many of the parents I've worked with, they didn't receive cues of safety when they were kids. They didn't receive uh, safe experiences of love, of touch, um, they didn't get told they were loved. They didn't get shown they were loved in a safe way. They, so they did not feel loved. Expressing love or connecting with someone else is terrifying for them. Even as adults, it's terrifying for them. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. And it feels weak. It's a neuroception of danger. So even if they were to attempt to say and express that they love their children is quite a challenge. It, it feels scary for them, and it stops them from doing so, and they stay down the ladder. Being in a danger state, feeling like you're weak or vulnerable, even though you're doing something that's positive and can build a relationship, something saying, like saying I love you, that feels dangerous. So it, it's in, for someone in a chronic danger state, that might be intolerable, and they, so they don't do it. Even though they do feel it, I really do believe that parents, I know all the parents I've worked with love their kids, but they're not able to access the safe and social system to be able to connect with their kids and to act on that love. But it, it is there. I know it. I, I'm positive because they tell me and they feel it. And once we get 
once we start talking about that stuff, it's there. They 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 know it's there, and they're mad as heck at themselves for not tapping into it. But they also realize that they didn't get that growing up, so it's extremely difficult for them. Obviously, if they're not expressing love and not giving safety cues to their children, this is going to leave their children emotionally alone, emotionally neglected or emotionally abused even, depending on the situation. Uh, Being present physically is not the same as being present emotionally. Knowing love versus feeling love is a common theme. And I think I've mentioned that in the past too. But I mean, you know, when I do parenting groups that I ask them, how do you show love to your kids? And it's a lot of times it's, you know, I, I, I uh, buy them clothes. I make dinner for them. It's, it's all the, you know, it's the stuff that kids need, which is great. That's important. Right. And when I asked them about their parents, they said, well, my dad, you know, he uh, provided for us. He, that, that's a big one. My, my parents provided for us. My dad provided for us. But that's not the same. That's um, that's great. But being present physically or being providing physically for basic needs is wonderful. But it's not the same as being emotionally present. You know, we I think what we want to do as parents is to take care of those basic needs while being safe and social, loving parents. And creating a healthy attachment. It's kind of the best of both worlds, right? So what the kids I meet with, what they're left with is they know their parents love them, but they don't feel it. And that that's a common, I mean, 99% of the kids I meet with are saying that. They know their parents love them, but they don't feel it. And this leaves them feeling or being alone. Being emotionally isolated. These are major cues of danger. Being alone, being uh, isolated, major cues of danger. Or being rejected from the family and being vulnerable. And this is, this is a again, another common theme in therapy is feeling alone. This is what the teenagers I meet with, and probably little kids too, but teenagers can voice it pretty well, is that even if they have friends and um, have a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that they feel alone. And that stems back to their attachment level with their parents, with their family. So that feeling of aloneness is commonly like underneath a lot of the presenting problems that I'm treating in therapy. Let's go back to parents. Because they're in danger mode, their self-regulation is compromised, as well as their ability to play. Co-regulation is now not being provided, and neither is exercising the vagal break, which we, uh, which commonly happens through play, and also by um, oh by learning through consequences from a parent. Parents who are cr- chronically in a danger state, they are not providing the co-regulation safety cues, as, as I've said. That means that the child is not building their ability to self-regulate. And one of the ways that we can provide co-regulation or increasing the, the strength of the, the vagal break is through play, but also through consequences. And if parents in a danger state are not doing an effective job of playing, which is very common, then children are not increasing the strength of their vagal break, which is playing, which that means, again, uh, being in a safe and social state, but being able to mobilize. That's going to increase the strength of their Vagal break, which means that they'll be able to tolerate more distress, basically. 
without dropping into flight fight mode. Likewise, so not just through play, and I'm going to add this. This is I don't think this is something I've heard Dr. Portis or anyone else mention, but as I was writing this, I realized that consequences are also a way to exercise the vagal break. Receiving a consequence, I'm not any kind, like I don't, this doesn't count abuse. I'm not talking about that. But receiving a consequence is a way to learn from your mistakes to help for the next time, if you know what the consequence is, to, to maybe think about it for a moment before you do the thing. You know what I mean? And of course, over the time, this gets, this gets easier. But consequences from parents that have uh, are, that are more in a danger state, these consequences are very erratic or extreme or maybe non-existent or unpredictable. So a child can't exercise their vagal break in this because there's no safety to come back to. There's no, I received my consequence, I you know, I was on timeout for five minutes or whatever, or um, I lost a privilege for half the day or whatever it is. So a child doesn't, you know, basically do the consequence and then come back to a safe and social parent. Instead, these kids that I'm talking about with generational trauma, they're either not getting a consequence or it's too extreme, it's too little, it's infrequent, it's unpredictable. So there's no structure to it. There's no way to gauge the consequences of a choice. So in in this sort of environment, a healthy attachment becomes a lot less likely because the child's now joining their parent in in a defensive state and they don't have a choice. And now there are two dysregulated nervous systems. So this is an unhealthy attachment. But this first healthy attachment is is so important. It's, it's key for the child's future. This is so important because it helps them to recognize safe friendships, safe relationships. And if they don't get that healthy attachment, that, um, you know, feeling loved, feeling like you're a part of a family, feeling like you're important, making relationships in the future becomes a bigger challenge. And so we see that there's, there's a, probably, you're seeing there's a domino effect here. That this is passed on from parent to child as a child grows up, passed on to the next child. These kids are being raised without a safe, protective connection with an adult. And they're, they're really kind of being set up for failure at a young age. And I don't want to say failure because I don't know everyone's future. So it's it's not like that, but it, there's more challenges basically. They're, they're being set up for more challenges at a very young age. This, so just from looking at attachment and emotional abuse or abandonment, we can see that a child is left alone and unprotected by a safe parent figure, which is leaving them in a defensive state, which they will carry into the school system and into dangerous situations in their teens into, and, and beyond, and into relationships and into eventually being a parent themselves. This child is already in a defensive state and unable to use their social engagement system because they haven't been able to practice that. They haven't gotten the safety cues from their parents. If they never experience a safe relationship, they won't be able to provide one, and they'll be seeking out relationships that aren't safe. It's so like this, it's, it's really, like I say, it's a setup for failure, but it's, it's, I don't think that's an extreme statement. So this is a this is like they're setting we're setting kids up for um, a lot of challenges if we're not able to provide that first safe attachment that we're really kind of setting them up for some um, some traumas down the line. Now these are just 
this is like one piece of the puzzle of generational trauma. Everything I've laid out does not even really consider like physical and sexual abuse or neglect. I'm not even talking about that stuff. And along, and you know, along with that stuff comes denial and keeping secrets and blame and shame and, and all kinds of stuff that goes along with that as well. So there's a lot more pieces that go into the generational trauma puzzle. But being alone is an undercurrent in all the kids I've worked with. I think that kids can survive and recover from horrible events if they have someone safe to go to. And you'd be surprised what someone will tell you when you ask them when things change for them. The answer might not be when the abuse happened. So like if you were to ask them, when did things get worse for you? Or what was that moment that your life really changed? The answer might be that it's when they lost the safe person, when they lost their protection, or when they lost that one healthy attachment that they had. Usually it's like a relative, someone um, and somewhere away from the abuse. So like a different home, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle. Someone they go to that they actually feel safe with and has enough of attachment with to, to feel safe. But when that relative passes away or moves away or gets cut off from the biological family, the family of origin, or the family the child lives with, that's when things change. Now I don't have a safety outlet. Now I have nowhere to go. I'm stuck and I'm hopeless. Or even um, things change when their attempt to get help fails, like telling someone about the abuse or telling someone about what they're going through. Um, and like me, it, it could be a parent. It could be, you know, this is how mom's treating me or dad's treating me. And the other parent doesn't believe them or a teacher that doesn't believe them or discounts it or doesn't act on it. This, this is often the event that breaks them. Like it just, it's the last straw when they finally open up and they, and which is a terrifying event because oftentimes there's threats of what will happen if you, if you tell someone. So when they finally do so, and they're not believed. This is um, always hard for me to hear from the kids I work with. This event where they open up and they they reach out for help. And they're either not believed or they're blamed or they're shamed or they're dismissed. This could be the event that really is the tipping point. And this is where real life really changes. And the last little bit of hope is gone. It, and it dies. The point here is that taking that emotional isolation, being alone, and combining it with physical abuse, sexual abuse, or neglect is a really a crippling combination and inevitably leads to a shutdown for the child victim. They have no other choice but to go into a shutdown. Here's the thing, though. They will get this need met, or they'll get as close to it as they can. They'll do the best they can. They, they have a need to connect. They have, they have to feel safe and cared about. Everyone, we all do. Not just kids, we all do. But we're talking about generational trauma, so we have to realize that if they're not getting these needs met from home, safety and protection, they will get these needs met somewhere else. They'll find this through peers or love interests. But with generational trauma, they may not have experienced connection in a safe way and are existing more down the ladder. 
so they don't know safety and they can't detect danger accurately. This is a bad combination. It's a bad, bad combination. Like attracts like, so they will attract relationships who are also down the ladder. I, I see that over and over and over again with the kids that I've worked with. These kids who lack a safe and protective home are going to put themselves in situations where they are more likely to be traumatized. Like buying drugs, drinking at parties, submitting to dangerous people. The wrong person is more likely to come along and take advantage of a child in a danger or life threat state. It's kind of the image I have in my head is a predator, a lion that's hunting prey and targeting the weaker member of the herd that has fallen behind. The wrong partner is going to do so by disguising himself, though, or herself. They're not going to look like a lion. They're going to look like a part of the herd. They're going to look like someone trustworthy. They're going to look protective and caring. you got to believe me on this. This is what I'm hearing from the kids that I work with all the time. They desperately want to belong, to feel safe. And that desperation is being exploited by a predator, by their peers. And they are willing to repeatedly give them chances to forgive and try again. So they haven't had a healthy relationship. They haven't experienced a healthy relationship. They're not detecting danger cues. They're putting themselves in dangerous situations. The most dangerous peers are targeting them. Their homes often don't have predictable consequences or predictable relationships. These are ingredients for further trauma. And then these kids will grow up and repeat with their own. And those kids will need to get their needs met and eventually be in the wrong situation or with the wrong person and so on. So that was a rather short episode. I, I feel like that was enough. I'm just going to trust my gut on this one. I don't want to pile it on. Um, I, I think that was enough. So hopefully you, you get the idea of how important it is to have that safe attachment and how it can kind of set someone up for a much more difficult life down the line if, if they don't have that and how it gets passed on from generation to generation. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this has brought you some value. If you have a question about anything, I'd love to hear it and possibly address it in a future episode or in a blog post. Feel free to contact me. Thanks a lot. <music>